Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. A um, few things I have to say. One is we personally are involved both as a lifestyle, the ketogenic diet, but also through my 16 years of clinical practice of what is effective. What do people need to take sometimes, all the time, to support their ketogenic diet? You'll get bits and pieces of this ongoing week after week. It's important to be comprehensive. In one way, it's simple. and one way, it's a little bit complicated. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. This is going to be the last in the sequence, I promise, of the prequels before um, we put out the two-part interview with Tom Siegfried. And the reason that I'm biting off pieces of explanations to Tom and others' orientation towards cancer as a metabolic disease, because there are some concepts that had to build on each other, and that's what I did in the two previous podcasts and I'll summarize those in a second. And I want to go a little beyond that, a little more technical. And the reason I'm even taking this approach, and by the way, as I've mentioned in previous podcasts, but I don't do it in every podcast, is that this is, in essence, a journey of me going deeper into what the ketogenic diet is and why it has so many different applications. The reason I'm doing this is not just because I'm curious, because I personally feel this saved my life. If you want to go back and hear my story, I think it's in the, I'd have to look that number up, but it's within the first 10 podcasts of how I was on death's doorstep. And this brought me back from that. And my wife had a history of an angioma and this kept her in, has kept her in remission for the last six years. So if I was such a smarty pants of a physician, of a naturopathic doctor, of all the patients that I saw in the 16 years, it's probably in the neighborhood of 10,000, that why didn't I apply this? I just didn't know that. I knew other things. You know, my focus was improving the diet. So the diet was, and that work was not new, but I just didn't focus on a high fat, low carb, ketogenic lifestyle. It, I hadn't gotten that far in my thinking. And it was only until a lot of catastrophes happened in our own lives that it pushed me to access these kind of information. And that speaks to the difficulty of physicians in general. And I'm speaking of good physicians that want to be well-informed. If they're in the trenches, that's a five-day-a-week job of being with patients and being present with the patients and doing the charting and doing, you know, getting their whole business or however they're operating, whether it's in the hospital or a private practice, that's exhaustive work. And it goes, there just isn't the time. And so there's two ways that compromises, that way of doing business compromises your knowledge. One is you're exhausted and you can't put anything in your mind, of course. Uh, the other is, which is kind of the stereotype of allopathic MD doctors, especially in hospitals, is they meet with the patient for a shorter and shorter period of time. Five minutes, maybe 15 minutes if you're lucky, and it's done. And you just don't get into the depth or to the quality of patient care that either party wishes exists. So that was my reason why. This is, in essence, a, a journey, a, a protracted soliloquy, if you will, of me learning about the ketogenic diet and sharing it. And I'm putting it in a more layman's way of understanding because I think this should be accessible by everybody. We shouldn't figure... We shouldn't ever come to the point of, oh, this is too complicated. I'm going to go find somebody who knows more about it, and they're going to be my interpreter. Oh, that would be great if such interpreters were readily available. But usually, the need for understanding 
shows up a lot sooner than your life in your life than you would either care to admit or what reality will allow you. Okay, so that's why I'm driven by this. I find it very interesting. It certainly has allowed me to work with and get to know people like Tom Siegfried and meet uh, and talk with Tom, Dr. Westman, and on and on, Stephen Kinane, Dr. Kinane. Totally fascinating what they're doing. So with that, I'd like to proceed. Let's summarize the first two prequels to an interview with Tom, Dr. Siegfried. And we, it comes down to the, the Warburg effect. You've now heard that word a lot. But before the Warburg effect was the Pasteur effect. So from the 1860s, Pasteur said there's two different types of metabolism within the cell. One is glycolysis, or a fermentation pathway, if you will, one that does not require oxygen, and that actually does release energy, forms ATP. It's not efficient, but it's fast. And then there's another called respiration, specifically oxidative phosphorylation that is within the mitochondria that does yield a lot of energy, but it requires oxygen. Okay, so that's the the Pasteur effect says when a cell is put uh, taken away from oxygen, it can ferment. When it's put in oxygen, it respires, it uses oxygen. So it's an either or, and it prefers respiration. Warburg came along and said, well, in a cancer cell, in a tumor cell, which is different, it's different in the sense that it produces lactate, and lactate is the end product of the glycolysis, that first, that's how we know. So when there's a high production of lactic acid or lactate, we know where that cell is just running on the fermentation pathway, the glycolysis, which doesn't require oxygen, but produces lactate. Okay, so it says, well, a tumor cell produces a lot of lactate even in the presence of oxygen. So something's amiss here because according to Pasteur, it should have reverted, or not reverted, should have advanced to rest 100% respiration and nearly nothing in the way of lactic acid. The end product of the respiration pathways carbon dioxide. So we know that when we breathe, we breathe in air. And of the air is about 20%, 22% oxygen. So we take in that oxygen and we ex- expire CO2, among other things. So CO2 is the end product of respiration, but that's not actually what they measure. What they do is they measure how much oxygen was consumed and they subtract that and they say that's what was the respiration quotient. So those are the two things that we can kind of like walk away and say, well, all right, now I understand that, you know, cancer cells, tumor cells don't need oxygen. They strictly ferment. What we mean by fermentation is glycolysis primarily. Well, and then I told you about SLP, substrate level phosphorylation. So this, which actually does go through the mitochondria. It's that broken way. It's that backup system, as I was saying. So I want you in your mind to tether together the concept of glycolysis, which doesn't need oxygen, and the concept of SLP, which goes through the mitochondria. It's not very efficient. These two are both considered fermentation pathways. They're both considered very primitive pathways. They're both considered one of what what evolutionary, what evolutionists believe, evolutionary uh, biologists believe that prior to oxygen on earth, now we're going back quite a ways, 
Prior to oxygen on Earth, there was life, but it did not depend on oxygen. It depended on a number of fermentation pathways. One was from glucose, that's glycolysis, and variations of that. The other was SLP, which depended on uh, uh, glutamine. So we can guess, though I don't know, outside of the human body and mammalian bodies, there and back in that era, back in that ancient, ancient era, there might have been things that that fermented other uh, proteins, other amino acids as well. But in this particular situation, the fermentation pathways we are referring to is one that uses glucose and one that uses glutamine. These are the two fuels that allow a cancer cell, a tumor cell, to grow furiously, to, to upregulate, it upregulates the glycosis, like the glycolysis, and it ekes along with the SLP, but it gives them energy. And so these are the two fuels for a tumor cell. And the whole objective of cancer as a metabolic therapy is to reduce and or eliminate these fuels and therefore to make the cancer cell, the tumor cell, more vulnerable to even other injuries. And so some of these other injuries would be oxidative damage by hyperbaric oxygen, putting people in a tent, if you will, or hard shell. It's like a, it's like decompression chamber, as I told you before, under two, two and a half atmospheres, 100% oxygen, for a number of periods of time. Why is that? It's not force-feeding oxygen through the mitochondria. No, don't be thinking that. It's forcing a lot of reactive oxygen species, ROS species, because it ends up, as we've talked before, when you deprive the body of carbs as best as possible, it's kind of an impossible limit to get to, but when you deprive it of carbs, when you deprive it of glucose, you then force the body to burn ketones. Normal cells can burn ketones. Ketones is both a fuel, it's both mealtime for normal cells, but cancer cells, because they're in this primitive state, have not developed the ability to eat, consume, burn, in any way, use ketones. The ketones secondarily, or at the same time, protect normal cells. So they're both a shield of protection that it is an antioxidant, if you will. So they are less injured by this, we call it HBOT, a hyperbaric oxygen treatment. Uh, they're less affected by that. Whereas a tumor cell, when it upregulates the fermentation, that upregulation of the fermentation is protective to the tumor cells of prooxidants. So it's, it's an antioxidant shield of protection in a number of ways. And so by removing the glucose, the carbs, getting them on a, a calorie-restricted ketogenic diet, we're talking about cancer patients, of course, calorie-restricted ketogenic diet, that forces, for the most part, all cells to consume ketones. And to drop that even further, once they are in ketosis, once the patient is in ketosis, and that, as, as Tom will talk about, it's not always a particular minute on a particular day. It varies per person. Some people can get into ketosis very easily. Some people cannot. As we've talked about a little bit before, is that 
there is this concept called insulin resistance or insulin sensitivity. They're the same issue just being addressed from if you're very sensitive to insulin, then and you quickly can get into ketosis, you're a great patient right off the bat. But some have what they call insulin resistance. And so their body basically needs to be not re-educated, but it gradually gets to be more efficient with insulin. The reason I mention that is because after a patient is put into ketosis, it achieves ketosis by being on a ketogenic calorie-restricted ketogenic diet, is that um, it then allows the patient to take and to be given outside exogenous insulin to drive down the glucose levels even further. So that particular point of being, being given further insulin doesn't all happen at the same time. So there's a personal person, these transitions to the next level of the metabolic therapy protocol as it is today vary. They don't vary in components. They vary in terms of how long it took a particular patient to get to that next level. Okay. So that's a, I think we're all, you can understand all this so far. So, but these are big concepts. So the reason we're going so deeply into cancer, and some of you are probably wondering, you know, I'm just here about weight loss and ketogenic diet. Well, I'm here to say that the ketogenic diet is important for you in so many different ways. Obviously, your immune system, um, whether it's autoimmune, neurological impairment, and so on. We'll get to even these subtopics, and we've covered some of them before, but there's so many aspects of why you would consider taking on and maintaining, for the most part, a ketogenic diet in addition to just losing weight, okay? That's why we're delving into this. So let's say you're a cancer patient, and the best that you can do, because you're not working under any doctor that knows anything about this, the best that you can do is only uh, focus on a ketogenic diet. Well, you've done a lot. You've done a lot. And that initially will slow down the growth of cancer, maybe even arrest it for a while for most cancers. So nobody can say 100%, right, for most cancers. But knowing that, as we've talked before, there is another fermentable fuel out there, glutamine, and this transition time may mean with, with time that your cancer becomes more efficient at using glutamine, and that would be through the SLP, substrate level phosphorylation. So that's why both components really need to be addressed, okay? And some of the other concepts, I'm just sort of going over some of my notes here, our conversation with Tom, is that, you know, what drives a cancer initially is a damage to the mitochondria. You know, what damage is it? We sort of mentioned, pick your favorite environmental or toxic substance to a mitochondria. And those, whether it's radiation or virus or pesticides and so on, all these things. And it can be cumulative, right? Most of us don't live in one particular vat of toxins. We live in this mixed world that is swirling with various things, whether it's the water or the air or the food we eat that didn't exist about 50 years ago, that we didn't get exposed to as much as we're getting exposed to today, 50 years ago. Okay, so whatever damages the respiration of a mitochondria, there must then be a transition period to the fermentation metabolism, okay? That means glucosis, 
glycolysis, and SLP. So that takes a period of time. Injury happened, respiration's getting worse off, it's being impaired, there's this transition to upregulating, become more efficient at being a, a robust fermenter. So two parts there. Once the cell enters a fermentation metabolism, it goes back to a default state, which is that default state of the ancient metabolism. Fermentation is that ancient metabolism. And why I mention it in this case, back in that day, when there was no oxygen on Earth or has yet to be incorporated to any particular biology, is that there was an unrestrained proliferation. It was cellular, one cell after another. It was just upregulating everything. It was mad growth. That's how the world existed. Mad growth. Claim the space. Get bigger, faster, as fast as you can. So that proliferation that we know of cancer, right? We go, away. there's no cell death. There's no apoptosis. There must be something magical going on. Well, there is and there isn't. The mitochondria does have its own set of genes. Most of the genes are in the nucleus. There are, I think it's 13 genes in the mitochondria that are unique and not duplicated in the uh, nucleus. So it's these genes as the, as the structure and function of the mitochondria is damaged by whatever it was, that that structure and function starts to teeter and become worse and worse. But what also happens to the fact that it can't hold on to oxygen, it can't respire well or at all, is that some of its other functions, and one of those functions were it controlled cellular growth. It said, no, each cell dies after a certain so many cycles, and it dies. Well, it then, they call it oncogenes. And so when certain oncogenes are not turned off, they're actually kept on, one would be P53, but we're not going to get into any of that. Then that's where the unrestrained proliferation, the unrestrained growth of cancer cells comes from. So it's not a, an amazing new feature. It's actually, according to the theory of the cancer as a meta metabolic disease, this unrestrained growth comes from the fact that it's surely a fermenter. It's thrown back to the ancient metabolism, not the newer metabolism of respiration. I found that really pretty interesting. And that, you know, because at least through medical school, you start learning about, you know, what are the definitions of cancer? And one of the definitions of cancer are, is unrestrained growth. It, there's no cell death. There's no apoptosis. And it seems to be, that's amazing. That's why they say cancer is so difficult to understand because it has these different aspects to it. But when you look at an evolutionary terms about life on earth as we see it and as we know it, that that was part of the features that had always existed. So then that would bring you to the question of, well, wait a minute, if you had this, this ancient metabolism, whatever it's growing, it's, if it's, I wouldn't even know the name of these cellular things. Obviously they're cellular, multicellular, but they're without oxygen. You know, do they just take over the world? You know, what is the limitation to their growth? Well, the limitation to their growth would be either they were killed by something else or they ran out of the nutrients that made their particular version of fermentation possible. So they ran out of their nutrients or they died from some other reason of their comp competition back then. 
So I wanted to explain that. I thought that that was an important thing to to know. Um, so if a cancer cell is to survive, it has to upregulate fermentation. That's pretty much all you need to know, which is sugar and now glutamine in its core. It falls back on an ancient an ancient uh, metabolism well before oxygen existed on Earth in the atmosphere when everything fermented. So the metabolic therapy for cancer is doing nothing more than depriving cancer of its fermentable fuels and then thereby killing them. That's, that's the core of understanding what this is about. What's really interesting is that in order to get to this integrated theory of understanding about what makes a cancer cell survive, grow, source its energy, it took biology, evolution, and genetics to come together. So it's a very, it's a very integrated approach. It's not just a molecular scientist. It's not just a biochemist. Certainly it's not just a geneticist. But all of this had to be brought together. So that's why it's amazing that uh, somebody like Tom, who is pretty holistic in the sense that he brought more components than his formal education together, and talked to, as he'll talk about, uh, collaborated with a number of other experts on trying to find out why was he hitting a wall on something else. So this has been a long journey for him to come to this clarity back with his book in 2012. So... The other thing I wanted to mention about that was really interesting is that what has been done a number of times, and it's called a uh, nuclear transplant. Isn't that interesting? So they would take cancer cells, and they would take normal cells, and they would switch out the healthy nucleus and put it into the cancer cell. And they would put in the nucleus from the cancer cell, and they would put it into the healthy cell. Now, everybody felt they knew what would happen. They felt, prior to this being done many, 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 many times, so it's now pretty much irrefutable, they all thought that, well, you take the cancerous, you take the nucleus from the cancer cell and you put it into the healthy cell, the healthy cell is going to be cancerous, right? Hmm. That was a logical conclusion. You know, it's because that was looking through the lens of genetics only or molecular biology only. And that was too... Some people still look only through that lens, by the way. And there's a lot of research grants one can get by just looking through that lens. But however, it's a tad superficial because the results were you took that nucleus from a cancer cell and you put it into a healthy cell that the healthy cell didn't get cancer. But the healthy nucleus, when it was put into the cancer cell, became cancerous. So what that shows is that, one of it shows that it's not genes, for one. So it's not genes. But it showed that it was something in the cytoplasm. So in the cytoplasm is the mitochondria, and it's all these other organelles. So it was in the cytoplasm, and it was the respiration that was defective in the mitochondria. So that's how we know 
that it's in the cytoplasm and in the mitochondria. Pretty interesting, huh? It's just it's a phenomenal, a phenomenal experiment that only in the last, I don't know when it was done the first time, but clearly the technology had to come to such a point that you could do something like that and that you could have and do it again and again and again and again and saying, why isn't this working out the way you thought it was going to work out? You know, why isn't the, the healthy cell getting cancer? So the reason we now we, we raise that issue of why cancer cells are not genetically driven, they certainly can in part, but why they aren't genetically driven is because of that experiment. But when we hear somebody say, oh, I have a family history of cancer and we have this gene in our, in our um, shared biology, in our family history, that yes, that makes them probably at greater risk, but it is not a determinant. That is, people with, let's say, BRAC1 and BRAC2, those are mutations that are known to be highly associated, with, actually not highly associated, less than 5% of all breast cancer patients have had a BRAC1 or BRAC2 genes. And then the question is, were they on both chromosomes? Were they heterozygous or homozygous? But it was under 5%. So that means 95% of people who had those genes did not. It did not, it affected other people that had no genetic predisposition. So the genes are a variable. They're a small variable. And, and when you go around, name that gene and name that cancer, it doesn't work that way. So the point I'm building up to is that these, this person's body these person's mitochondria, their, their cells, their formerly healthy cells, were injured in some way. So the mitochondria was injured in some way. It, it acquired defects. And so the defects cause the structure and function to operate very differently, namely not to be able to use oxygen. So that was a big setback. And then it transitioned into being a fermenter. But it had to be damaged first, usually environmentally. And this is certainly what Warburg thought. He didn't know what environmental factors, but that the mitochondria had to be damaged. And not necessarily damaged genetically. There's a lot of work around the idea of uh, certain mem parts of the membranes, proteins, and lipids that are part of the, the mitochondria walls. We're getting a bit technical. One's called cardiolipin. I say that only because it is brought up in the conversation between Tom and myself. But to understand that, oops, the mitochondria has acquired a problem. It doesn't look like it's going to patch itself up. It doesn't look like it's going to be healthier. But that is a possibility. And why I say that is a possibility, if there are some cells that did not go through that transition yet, they received the injury, but they did not go through the transition of being upregulating their fermentable pathways, and this person, or you, shut off the glucose by going on a ketogenic diet, that may just be enough to have that cell, if it's not too far gone, to actually come back and be a, a healthier cell. We know that's what fasting does. We've talked about this before, that fasting helps turn over that whole biogenesis, get out the bad mitochondria, help birth new healthy mitochondria. So that's a function that's happening. How long you have to fast, and we, we talk about that three days, but that's not a etched in stone, but I'm saying this is the process of a ketogenic diet goes along the same pathway as does fasting. And fasting has some remarkable features to it. That, uh, along with others, 
you'll hear Tom mention that, you know, there's there's uh, research on those who have fasted for a month and they've turned their cancer around completely. Do we know why? We can guess in part why. Obviously, they went into ketosis and so they shut off the the glucose and they kept on. It was a 100% full on. They did not eat anything, so therefore their sources of other proteins, i.e. glutamine, became less and less and less. So in essence, they did it the hard way, but it has been documented. It's interesting. I don't have those references, but it's just a part of this pathway that I want you to say, oh, I get it now. I see ketosis. I see the generation of ketones. I see how it's common, both fasting and, and why that's part of this. What else can I tell you about? I think I just wanted to hit, oh yeah, the the other thing that you'll hear is that, so why do people use radiation? Why is radiation used and why is chemo used? They're not necessarily bad. There's probably some cancers of it that probably can only be treated that way. It'd be great if they're treated that way and, you know, that's what they call standard of care, but the standard of care is so poor in most cancers that even if the patient ends up being cancer-free, they actually have all these other diseases, disorders that have to be treated. And because of the chemotherapy use in cancers and radiation is that these survivors of that cancer then go into a whole area of what they call cancer survivor medicine. In other words, now they need to be treated with these other things. And they're usually uh, neuropsychiatric disorders, hormonal disorders, autoimmune disorders. So that's where that kind of treatment ends up. You'll hear that in the case of brain cancers, that not to use it is not to use radiation under any circumstances. And they use that a lot. And the reason that is, is the radiation by killing cells. When cells die, they release a lot of glutamine. So now you're releasing a lot of of the secondary, this that, or one of the second most preferred fuel for cancer, right? So here you go, you're giving it a great dinner. And yes, you've killed some cells, but the other cancer cells are there getting more than they had before. And so then after that person with radiation for brain cancer, it will probably go on steroids. steroids. And what do steroids do? Steroids crank up your blood sugar. They crank up your glucose, whether you want it to or not. It goes through cortisol, cortisol to glucagon, to the liver and your cortisol goes up. So now it has its two fuels that it loves. So that's why radiation for brain cancer is really not a way to go. There's probably a few other cancers that it may be better, uh, but the idea of this whole idea of starving the cancer and having the healthy cells live is that you reduce, you'll find that the cancer sort of gets surrounded. So it gets definite boundaries or borders as I would say margins specifically. And at some point, you might even have a surgical operation to sort of pop out the remaining cancer because it's so well defined by those margins. Interesting, huh? So I wanted to put it into a larger context that wasn't just black or white. So when you, the the problem about being enthusiastic about the ketogenic diet, you think it's going to solve the world. It turns into be your religion. Well, it's not a religion. It's a vital component. So vital that I wish I knew about it 20 years ago and I probably would have had a whole entirely different practice. So vital, it saved my life. So vital, it's kept my wife into remission. But so vital that it's being used as part of this combined therapy for treating cancer as a metabolic 
disease. So it's that important. But you can't be telling people, oh, you have this, you need to be in ketosis. And that's the only way to treat cancer. Well, now you see it's a little more varied than that. And glutamine is the second part. You can't always be doing that. You have to do it intermittently. Remember the whole pulse, uh, the press pulse idea? So I guess I wanted to end on a note that it's important to know that to really question the whole idea that cancer comes from genes only. It's genes provide a certain sort of propensity, but that gene will become important only in the context of injured mitochondria, only in the context of cells that can't, can't respire because they've been damaged enough. That's where those cells will set off on the path of a particular cancer, given that those genes. But they don't determine they don't determine if one gets cancer. They may predispose somebody to a certain type of cancer in cells that were becoming cancerous. That's how I would reframe that. Um, I think we'll just sort of leave it at that because there's a lot of fun things to listen to when, when Tom gets into it. He's always so passionate that, uh, and he's so well informed that it's often hard to get little bite-sized pieces of information and to explain it. So the story is going to be, you'll pretty much by end it, by the end of the, the conversation, you'll have a good understanding why he's so excited about this and how it's starting to take off in the United States. A little bit, a little bit, mostly overseas right now. And what these components are, they directly come back to the heart of all those components are having a patient in ketosis. So that would be a, a calorie-restricted ketogenic diet. So they're into ketosis. And from there, I told you the other components. So with that, this wasn't a long podcast, but I wanted you to extract, you know, Tom is going to be a Nobel Prize winner. I have no doubt about that. In 10 years, you will see it. And that's not blowing smoke. This is the guy who has worked harder than anybody I possibly know. And and he's retained so much of that. And I love when you talk to him, he's, he's I want to say, he's almost a little blue collar in some of the things he says because he, these concepts are just real. You don't have to be so academic. And the, the goal here is to reach people that are average people. We're not just talking to scientists or doctors or people in the health field. We're talking to the average person. And the average person needs to have that concept of what this is about. So thank you for your time. And I swear the next podcast will be Tom and I talking part one and part two. And then after that, we'll get into digging into Dr. Westman's materials. Uh, prequels to that. I wanted to follow up like I did last time saying that we are doing another coaching program. Uh, we will limit it to 10 people and it will be a paying course this time. And we'll be, you can pretty much be sure nothing's a guarantee, but in the course of eight weeks, if you don't know more than you're getting on these podcasts, and if you aren't in ketosis, assuming you want to be, that something's wrong, but it is full on working for you, and you you can expect a life change. That seems like hyperbole. It seems like an exaggeration. No, I'm going to be there. That's why it's only going to be 10 people. Um, that's why it's going to be paying. We have various services we have to pay for. Okay? So I hope to, if you're interested, please send me an email like many of you already have. So it's Dr. Goldcamp at ketonatropath.com. And for those in the Facebook group, you know how to PM me, and I'll put your name on the list. 
And when we get that formatted, finished being formatted, I'll let out a notice and I'll send it to you all. Take care. Thanks for listening. For anybody who has any questions, feel free to contact me on our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Same name as our podcast. I'm open to any questions and we plod through the good and the bad, the difficult and the easy week after week.